Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura Diaz. It is so good to have you here today. I'm thrilled for this episode to finally go up. Today we are doing book club. Welcome to book club. We are recapping Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I am so excited to release this episode because Braiding Sweetgrass is a book that has been on my radar for a really, really long time. And full disclosure, this was assigned as our book club read in November, and it just took a really long time to read it, and it took a really long time to put this episode together. So I'm excited to finally share it with y'all. If you have never heard of Braiding Sweetgrass, let me tell you about it. Drawing on her life as an indigenous scientist, a mother, and a woman, Kimmerer shows how other living beings offer us gifts and lessons, even if we've forgotten how to hear their voices. This book is a really, really beautiful collection of essays that has actually been named the best essay collection of the decade by the Literary Hub. It's a New York Times bestseller. It's a Washington Post bestseller, an LA Times bestseller. There is just so much commotion around this book, and I feel like it has become this really handy, golden child, iconic book in the environmental movement for Western environmentalists to better understand indigenous knowledge and so that we may better understand how we're incorporating indigenous knowledge into our everyday interactions with nature. It is a spiritual book. It is a really wise book. It's a beautifully written book. And it's a really cool collection of essays that I appreciated how they were broken down. I will go ahead and tell you, because I mentioned this in the episode, it took me a really long time to appreciate this book because it is so poetic and it's written in this way that is just, frankly, it's it's a beautiful book. It's so beautifully written, but I am not used to reading anything in this style, especially when it comes to nonfiction, especially when it comes to environmental books. So it was a different experience for me. And ultimately a very worthwhile experience. I'm so thankful that I did read this book. We read Braiding Sweetgrass with our friend Samira Pulaveripu. Samira is an environmental advocate, a graduate student. She is a friend of the podcast. She's the host of the Environment and List show that I had the pleasure of being on last spring. She's based in New York City. And again, Samira is a graduate student at the Parsons School of Design. She focuses on strategic design and management. After Samira and I connected on her show, we have just continued to stay in touch. 
And you know I love to bring on other podcasters to read books because last month we read Saving Us with Emily Stokel, who is the host of the Pre-Love podcast. I feel like it's so fun to chat with other podcasters when it is such an open conversation because they ask awesome questions. So in today's episode, I certainly lead some conversations and ask Samira some questions, and then she asks some really interesting ones back. So it's just a fun listen. We were both super engaged and both really got a lot out of the book. We had different takeaways, and I feel like this may be our most in-depth book club episode because we both pull specific quotes. We talk very in-depth about specific stories and essays in the book and ultimately have some larger conversations about advocacy, responsibility, gatekeeping in the environmental industry, uh, influences, influencers. There's just a lot to talk about, and I hope that you really, really enjoy this book. If you haven't listened to last week's episode with Dr. Jessica Hernandez about healing landscapes and indigenous science, I feel like that episode pairs really, really beautifully with this conversation. So if you haven't listened to it, I encourage you to go back and do so. And if you liked this episode, I encourage you to share it with a friend, share it with someone who would appreciate this book or just wants to know more about the book without reading it. That's the fun part about book club, that even if you didn't read the book, you can still really enjoy the conversations and get a lot out of them. Share this episode with a friend in your group chat, on your Instagram story, tag me at Podcast. And I hope you join us next month for a book club. We are reading Let My People Go Surfing. The Education of a Reluctant Businessman by Ivan Shunard. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Shunard. He is the founder of Patagonia, and it's essentially the story of creating an environmentally conscious business, responsible business, responsible entrepreneurship, and that's another really great highly recommended handbook in the environmental space. I'm excited to talk about ethical businesses and environmentally conscious entrepreneurship next month with my friend Kathleen Shepard. She is the founder of Tiller Swim, a brand that I talk about a whole lot on Instagram and a really, really cool Kickstarter brand of eco-conscious swimwear. So I'm sure Kathleen, as an entrepreneur herself, has some really hot takes on the book. I'm excited to read it with y'all. And the best part about book club is it really keeps me accountable. It gets me reading a lot of things that I've been recommended. And I love having these conversations with you because as I said, you really do not need to read the book to enjoy these episodes. So if you're looking to keep up with your reading goals, join the book club. But if you just want to pretend you're keeping up with your reading goals for the year, I'm here for you too. Quick disclaimer, as I was listening back to this conversation, my voice is out of control these days. And I'm going to go ahead and just say I'm sorry about that. I feel like I normally have a much higher pitched voice and I don't know if you can hear it. But the latest theory that I have is that I've been skiing a lot and when I go out to the mountains and then come back to Denver it takes my sinuses like 36 48 hours to reset and my voice comes back to normal I hope that's not TMI but if you're listening to this and you're like Laura sounds a little different let me tell you it's this mountain air that's really getting to me so I hope you enjoy this episode I think you're gonna really really like it and get a lot out of it let me know if you read with us like I said you can always reach me on Instagram all of my links are down below my email Anytime you want to connect, I'm always here to chat with you. So thanks so much for tuning in, and I will talk to you very, very soon. Enjoy the episode. Samira, welcome to the show. Welcome to Eco Chic. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. Thank you. I'm excited to talk to you about, oh my God, my voice is like having one today. I'm excited (laughs) to talk to you about braiding sweetgrass. How did you like the book? 
I really liked it. I thought it was a really nice perspective on someone who brought so many diverse perspectives on their, from their own life into a synthesis on how they view the world, you know, whether that be science or it be their life experience or, you know, their indigenous perspective. I just think it's important to think about everything that we have on the table in our own lives that informs the way that we view the world. So I thought that was really cool to see someone else's point of view. Yeah, this is quite a heavily discussed book. Did you know anything about Braiding Sweetgrass before we started reading it? I definitely had heard the name. I definitely had heard of other people reading it. I think it's a pretty common book for people that are in college that are kind of like in the climate space, but I studied business. So it was a little bit more far removed, but I had a roommate in college who was an environmental science major, and she was actually reviewing it for another book club at the same time that I was reading it. So um, that was really cool to see everyone kind of reading it at once. I feel like it kind of had a resurgence this year, this book. I agree. I feel like left and right, everyone was recommending that I read it. And I was looking forward to reading it. Like, I feel like this has been on my list to read for a really long time, but I didn't really know what to expect. I liked the different perspectives, like you said earlier, about mixing all of these different expertise. But there was also something about the book that was so poetic that I did not expect at all. Me either, like with every single metaphor and, you know, there were so many examples of comparisons that I just wouldn't have expected or really made me think deeper about um, nature in a way that I don't think I had that relationship with nature in my own life. Like I've always considered myself someone who loved the outdoors. Um, But that entire message throughout the book of reciprocity is something that I don't think I ever really deeply considered. And that was really special. Yes. Oh my God. So I flagged something that I wanted to read out loud on this episode because I am a book highlighter. Are you someone who I am in your books? Okay. Yes. I always like to ask at the top of these episodes because I feel like there is something about it that's a little sacrilegious. I did not find myself heavily highlighting in this book. I think just because it was so poetic that it took a long time for me to understand what a passage was trying to teach me. But the line that I loved so much was actually very early in the book, page 17. Uh, in the settler mind, land was property, real estate, capital, or natural resources. But to our people, it was everything. Identity, the connection to our ancestors, the home of our non-human kinfolk, our pharmacy, our library, the source of all that sustained us. So I thought that was so interesting to open up the book with because as I continued to read the passages, I felt like so much of my understanding of what it means to own land was really questioned. And this sense of connection to non-human things, like I have never thought about in any sort of depth. So opening up the book with a line like that really forced me to immediately understand that like my perspective was going to be really pushed. Yeah. And I, I love that the author not only uses her own perspectives on like land and everything like that, but she also learns from her students and she learns from just like different devices in the world. Like this is a little, um, there's one passage in the book where she's talking about grammar that I found so fascinating. I'm, I love linguistics and things like that. And she was talking about how she was trying to learn her language. And as she was learning it, 70% of the words in her ancestors' language are verbs. And in um, English, it's 30%. 
And because of that, like we almost are taught to disrespect it land because we don't see animated objects. Like we don't see animacy. And I thought that was so interesting. Yes. The word walnut, there was a whole passage on the word walnut that also really stuck with me and what walnut means to her people versus how it was anglicized and now how we just referred to like any tree as a walnut tree. And I don't remember the specifics, but I remember thinking that the linguistics of it were also really fascinating. Like the way that Western societies can take one word and like misconstrue it and we build it up to be something that it's not intended to be at all. So that also got me thinking a lot about like settler colonialism and how we adopt things in Western societies that are not ours at all to adopt. And on a totally separate passage, like way later in the book on Superfund sites, I felt the same way. There was this really beautiful passage about a tribe that was, I believe that she said that it was the oldest democratic society existing outside of like a Western government. It was this really beautiful thriving community. And she gave this whole very poetic passage about like all the things that had happened on that land. And now there are nine super fun sites on that beach or in that community. And what does it mean to clean up an area that was never yours to dirty in the first place? And there was something about all of these things between like language and land that just started clicking for me. And I was really quite moved. Yeah. And she also just talks about, you know, being able, uh, she talks about scientists as translators in the book and how, you know, like she wants to, she sees like humanity as a poem and how scientists translate that poem and communicate it. But at the same time, sometimes the language that they use can exclude people. And I thought that was really resonating too, you know, like the way that she does bring together like prose and scientific knowledge is something that I really think we need to see more of. Yeah, there was something very human about the way that she discussed her relationship with land that while it was quite spiritual, I'm thinking also of this passage around her cleaning up a pond on her property And what a frustrating time she had because she had released these ducks that didn't survive the winter. And then she had all this algae to clean up and how frustrating it was for her to clean all this algae and to try and fix the nutrient levels of the pond. And she's very upfront about saying like, my waders were full of water. It was cold. I wasn't getting anything right, blah, blah, blah. And that was the first time that I was like, oh, wow. She also acknowledges that there are very frustrating things about interacting with nature. Totally, totally. When you were reading this book, did you feel like these were, are these the types of books that you're very used to reading or was this kind of out of your comfort zone? That's actually, that's an awesome question. So I like to read nonfiction, but I never read books written in such a poetic sense. It took me a really long time to read it because I felt like I had to really digest each passage Or I would read a chunk of it and then I would have to put it down for a week because if I can be like totally vulnerable, I was like, I don't think I'm smart enough to read this. Like, I don't think (laughs) there are, there, there were so many things that just truly went over my head because it was written in such a poetic way. And while I really enjoyed the content, once I was done, it took me so long to consume because I was like, I don't know how I'm supposed to read this properly. Totally. And it's definitely one of those books that does build on itself. So it's like you, 
putting it down for a minute makes it kind of hard to connect all the pieces together and like really understand it as this one journey that she kind of goes on and like how she sees everything together. So I feel like there were definitely times where I was like, okay, I almost felt like I was back in my AP Spanish class when I was like a senior in high school and I had to decide for line by line by line. There was definitely something about that. But also I remember feeling even back then when I would do that for Spanish, that when you do kind of like take the time to digest material like that, you really feel it and you really understand it in a different way. And I think that this book had that impact on me because we spent time with it. You know, we started reading this book kind of a while ago. Yeah, I think because we spent time with it, it gave me a lot of room, I suppose, to almost like marinate on the information. I really was not anticipating so many conversations around it, I suppose, as well. Even just in my circle of friends, I feel like everyone has read this. And every once in a while, people would be like, oh, how is braiding sweetgrass going? And I'd have to be like, I still have a third of the book left. Like, I'm still working through. And they're like, all right, we'll talk about it when you're done. Because like, I'm not ready to talk about it yet. You have to get the whole picture before you get into it. And I was like, oh, God, like, I just need someone to tell me where I'm going with this. And until I finished it, I could not appreciate that stance. Totally, totally. But we made it through. Which of her perspectives do you feel like you really learned from the most? Because you're a scientist. I am not. Um, And on that front, I definitely learned a lot. Um, But what about you? I think the spiritual aspect of it, I was not anticipating. And I almost never consume content that talks about nature from a spiritual perspective. So I think I really appreciated it because it was quite new to me. I hope that I did learn from it. And I say that just saying, I feel like this is a book that will stick with me for a long time. So I hope that I really got something out of it. Um, I think that I did, but I just want to see it in practice, I guess, in the future. And I want to be able to engage in more conversations like this because I feel like the spiritual perspective of interacting with nature is so different from the way that I grew up understanding nature, which is, it was quite removed. So it was just hard. It was like hard for me to like come to terms with, to understand, grapple with at first. And now I'm really grateful that I did. But, um, but it was just something really different. What about you? What was something that you were not expecting to get out of this book that you did? Yeah, I was really shocked by the spiritual element of it too. I think that for me, like the way that I defined loving the outdoors was really different than this indigenous love that ran so deep. And it made me think about how we all kind of come to the table with a different understanding of what our relationship to nature is. And, you know, even like there's this one part of the book where they're on a field trip there. She's trying to teach Christian students to appreciate nature. And I remember she just couldn't get through to them. And they on the way home, they were singing Amazing Grace. And she felt like they kind of began to understand in their own way that relationship. And it made me think about how we all kind of have those different relationships, but what is the unifying thing that's going to help people as a whole have this respect and love and honor towards the environment? Because we're not all going to get there. We're not all going to reach this deep, perfect understanding, because in my opinion, that's a little unrealistic. But I learned so much from just hearing the perspective of Indigenous peoples that I don't think I get to hear every day, just because I don't have access to that perspective. So I think it's important that we just make that available to people and we learn from others. I think another thing that really surprised me is 
I've been thinking a lot about, I mean, I live in New York City, not far from the countdown clock. And I was thinking about how so often we're thinking about the environment as something that's deteriorating and, you know, we need to protect it. We need to conserve it. And this book really gave me this refreshed love of, wait, it's giving something back to us. And I think that that's something we forget too. Yeah, I really like that. I feel like there was also this interesting like collective sense that I was not expecting. I think that, again, perhaps from this Western perspective, it's very much like, what can I do? How can we save the planet X, Y, and Z? Or how is that community interacting with this climate change impact? And there was this like very beautiful message of collective appreciation that I wasn't expecting. I was expecting a little bit more of a you know, like the environment has given so much to me. Nature has given, like I have flourished so much because of my relationship with nature. And that really wasn't the point. The point was this understanding that holistically all of these communities, human, non-human are interacting in like a very communal sense. Totally. And also how she talks about the gift giving element and marketplaces and new economies, um, all of those different things. I'm in grad school for systems thinking. And, you know, so often people will talk about how capitalism isn't the best system, but like a lot of people are at a loss for new wave solutions. And I think that hearing this tale as old as time method of gift giving and like having that system of, you know, functioning as a society just proves that sometimes the answers are always there. And like, we really have so much to learn from the communities that have existed and um, nature itself. Quick break. I'd like to tell you a little more about one of our sponsors, the Oregon State University eCampus. With sustainability at the heart of its mission, Oregon State strives to create healthier people and a healthier planet. You know I am all about education and making sure that it makes sense for your lifestyle. Environmental education especially is so powerful to have on your own time. It's the same calling that Myra Radinsky, a current OSU eCampus student, feels. She has survived hurricanes, Arctic storms, and the devastation that they left behind. Now she's making a difference in her community in real time, all while pursuing a natural resources bachelor's degree online. Myra's Oregon State coursework provides her the knowledge that she needs to create an ecological restoration plan for her neighborhood, with a long-term goal of enhancing the viability of the area's seasonal creek. I love that. It is so cool and such a personal environmental solution. You can gain the same hands-on learning experiences as Myra by enrolling in one of Oregon State's online programs in the field of conservation and natural sciences. OSU eCampus is consistently ranked one of the nation's 10 best providers for online education, and all online programs are developed by the same expert Oregon State faculty who teach on campus. Learn more about how you can make your mark at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash ecochic. Again, that's ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash ecochic. It will be in the show notes. Now back to book club. Ah, that's a cool perspective. I want to ask you something that's a little tangential. 
but because you mentioned you are in school for systems thinking, how do you feel like that interaction of more perhaps like Western corporate, almost systems thinking, how does that interact with this more natural perspective, either presented in Braiding Sweetgrass or through your work with Environment and List? Like, how do those two intersections look? Totally. I think that um, when I learn about environmental justice and um, Indigenous peoples and all of those different things, it's really sad, but I do think that those perspectives have been so silenced for so long that it's something that you have to remember to include and constantly engage yourself in in order to incorporate that perspective and encourage other people to incorporate those perspectives. Because a lot of times that's not something that is even factored into a system that's being created in the first place because, you know, there's systemic disadvantages. So I think when I read books like this, it just reminds me of the different things at play and the different inequities that exist and that have existed since the dawn of time. And it gives you a perspective on what it's going to take to um, mitigate some of those things and um, the interactions that exist between different people and nature that we need to account for. So I'd say on the business front, like it, I think anyone who considers themselves like an innovator or an entrepreneur it's not something they can really ignore anymore. It's something that they really need to actively be doing the work to include if they actually want to make a lasting sustainable change. Yeah. Wow. That's really powerful to hear it from such a, I don't want to call it academic, but like a very high level, like understanding of how these different systems can play within each other. You have a very thorough understanding of what it takes to be both technical and inclusive. Because I I'm feel sure like- you can see this too, though. I mean, I think I think about business and in the similar way that you might see science, because a lot of my job, like throughout the years, working more in the marketing side of things has been, okay, so I see an Excel spreadsheet. There's a bunch of data on a page, there's a bunch, bunch of numbers, but like, what's the story? And like, what what is it actually saying? Like, what does this say about people? What does it say about the business? What does it say about where we want to go and who we want to be. And like, that's the narrative that we really create. And I feel like she did the same thing in a lot of ways throughout this book was how does she really tell a story through, you know, the different theses that she, her students, you know, her life and experiments versus what it looks like in her own lived life. Yeah, absolutely. That reminds me of what we were talking about before we started recording this concept that the face of activism has changed a lot. This concept that you have to be a perfect activist has changed a lot. And people are being more transparent about their own personalities and interests than they ever have been before. And this concept that you do not need to speak from a purely scientific perspective or a purely indigenous perspective, like there is more than enough room for you to be all of yourself in this space of climate solutions. So it it also got me thinking a lot about like, how do we show up as our full selves in this space, either as activists or as advocates or educators or science communicators or whatever it is, there is so much room for your personality that you shouldn't feel like you have to water it down to be taken seriously. Totally. And I feel like your show has actually made me feel so seen because I'm a huge pop culture nerd. Like I, um, I live on Dumas. I like, I know everything there is to know. And I just feel like, you know, it's, 
every single person in this movement is a human with friends and a family and has had an entire life filled with experiences that are going to help them be a better climate advocate, you know? And I think that that's finally becoming apparent and it's fun. It's so much more fun to see activists as friends than as someone to fear or be intimidated by. Like at the end of the day, like the themes in this book are of community and you know, it's really hard to build a movement without community. And oftentimes in grassroots movements, you know, it's not so much that someone's a leader, they're an organizer. And I think that that's something that is being redefined. Yeah. Also this concept of grassroots movements. I'm glad that you mentioned that term, because again, it goes back to this idea that like, you can be so deeply yourself that it does not have to be this collective large scale countrywide thing that you participate in. If there is something in your community that you can tap into, it should feel like that is your place. Like that is your community and that's how you are going to make the most impact. And in a sense, this kind of reminds me of the last book I read for book club, Saving Us by Catherine Hayhoe. And there is a lot of uh, language there around what it means to be a community advocate And how do you reach the people that you think need to be involved in the climate space? And she really advocates for tapping into the people that already interact with you on some level. So if you are a scuba diver, like that's the community that you should be talking to about climate change with. Or if you are like a really big thrift advocate, like find those people in your local area. Or if you are a Christian, like the Christian groups, the church groups, whatever, like those are the people you tap into. But if you take someone who's never been in those spaces and then you have them be the face of climate change, there is very little incentive for this group to accept the outsider as the leader of the movement. Like it should really come from yourself and from within. Totally. And I think that for a lot of my friends who maybe aren't as like directly in the climate space, I might be one of the only points of contact they have to climate news or to why I got started, you know, like telling your own story, having conversations, like it makes people really think about their lives and okay, well, my friend did this, maybe I should try this. And they kind of find something that fits for them. But if no one's talking about it, it's really easy to be um, not in a really negative way, but ignorant to um, acting. And I think that a lot of people want to act. It's just that they might not even, it might not even cross their mind. And the first thing is just like planting that seed for people. Yeah. Maybe you'll appreciate this analogy because you are in marketing and in business, this concept of influencers, like totally tangential, but like, why is it that ad dollars are going to influencers now as opposed to billboards and TV commercials and all of those things that are like traditional ad avenues, I suppose. It's because you follow an influencer because you feel like you get to know them and you like the Instagram stories and you want to know about their family and their homes. And like, you want to know this person. And those are the people that are ultimately selling you on a new pair of shoes or like whatever it is that they're advertising for. And by the same token, it's like, if I have a girlfriend who is really raving about a great sale that she, you know, came across or whatever, like that's the person that I'm going to listen to. And I'm going to say like, I'm looking for X, Y, and Z. And if she has a suggestion, I'm going for her. So why is it that this like influencer culture has made so much sense? Why is it that you are so inclined to like do things that your friends encourage you to do? It's the same sort of thing. It's like, you feel like you're part of the same community. You feel like these are people that you relate to and that you align with, and you have something in common with that makes you trust them. And so on this scale of like, 
climate influence, what does that even mean? Like, how do you tap into people in your community that are aligned with you in some way, or even people that you haven't really gotten to know on a deep level? Like what makes them trust you from a climate advocate perspective? Yeah. I think that that's something a lot of people are grappling with now, because I think people, as they are beginning to show their personalities and show these different sides of themselves, they're like, okay, like they know me for this. Are they going to like me as this? Like, are they going to like me as people? And like, people are having that reconciling of like the science and themselves. And I mean, I think the faster that we get to the point where we understand, um, the humanity in all of this is when it'll start to feel more like it's not so much like a climate influencer or anything like that. It's just like, this is your friend who likes lots of things who also happens to know about the environment and they can teach you something just like your other friends can teach you about music or about fashion or about anything else. So I think that like, yeah, that conversation about being more human, it's we're getting there. We are getting there for sure. Yeah, I feel like we are getting there. The movement has changed a lot in the last few years. Like we were saying earlier, people are just different. Like people care about different things now in the climate space and it's not so purely scientific and it's not so purely like climate countdown clock. It is human, there's emotions to it. And I think that there is this, again, like more grassroots sense of like, what is it that you deeply care about? And for a long time, there was also this concern of just not doing enough And like the, I'm thinking of like the zero waste movement of if you could not fit all your trash into a mason jar for the last five years, like you just were not an environmentalist. If you're not a vegan, like you're not an environmentalist. And I think a lot of those really strict boundaries around, around what it means to care about climate change, or maybe it's not even boundaries. It was frankly gatekeeping. It was like keeping people out of this movement. That's not where we are anymore. Very thankfully in my perspective, I think that it's just changed a lot. Oh, I so agree. I mean, that's a big reason I feel like I felt like I needed to start publicly posting about my journey with environmentalism. I think that for a long time, like it was just how I live my life. And I've spoken about this on my podcast, but it's just kind of how I grew up. Like you turn off your water, you shut off your lights. Like that was just who we were. And it's also a big part of my culture, like um, being Indian American, like not being wasteful. It's just something that they do in India and something that my parents brought here. So I mean, it was not represented in that way. And I think that's something a lot of first generation creators will say is that like when we saw the climate movement, we didn't realize it was the same thing because for so long it was represented as trash jar um, and also not that diverse of a space. And I think that we're finally getting past that. But I'm curious your opinion as someone who has been making Eco Chic for a bit longer and things like that as we kind of evolve, what is the divide between like, how do you think the space will change as we kind of have those people who are so much more educated and informed and have like really like a really sustainable lifestyle and people who are just as vocal and have just as much of an education, but maybe don't have the same habits. How do you feel like that trust will kind of tip the scales? That is such a good question. I feel like this is a little bit too easy of an answer, but I think that there is honestly a little bit of a void of compassion between both groups. And when we're talking about climate change from a very technical perspective, there is the sense that people don't, people just don't care. 
And we're not really getting to the root of this issue of like, why is it that people don't care? There is this level of capacity. And I say this a lot. It's like people are concerned about other things and climate change is something they can deal with later. It's not happening tomorrow. Like they can deal with it at some other time. People are concerned about jobs and money and families and obligations. So capacity is a huge problem. But also there's this relatability problem that if you are presenting material in this sense, that's like just not where people are and people do not care about the polar bears or save the whales or whatever, like then don't, then that's not the angle that they're going to like come to you with and guilting people into it is also not the way to go. And it reminds me a lot of also this fast fashion movement and this anti-fast fashion movement. There are a lot of fast fashion brands, I'm thinking specifically of H&M, that will put on these eco-conscious collections or sustainable collections. And like people think they're doing a really good job by buying into that. And then you're like, oh, well, you're not really getting to the root of the problem. Or like, you're still doing bad because you're buying from H&M. And is that really the message that we want to send? This is like super controversial, but in a sense, it's like, I'm glad that you realize there's a problem with fast fashion and like eco-conscious capsule collections are a good option. I think that there's a lot more work to do. And I think that you have a lot of space to like educate yourself and saying, I'm still not buying from H&M on a grander scale and I'm moving away from fast fashion altogether. But it's like people are making these little steps that they think interact well with their lives and like make sense in their, in whatever their bubble is. So to get back to your question of like, what is this divide between people who care about climate change and educated people who just do not interact with it on that same level? I think it's about compassion and it's about like meeting people where they are and saying like, you're doing a good job and here's how you can do an even better job. And here's how you can bring this to your friends. And here's how you can talk to your family about your sustainable swaps. So in a sense that the human element of the climate crisis is like slowly but surely coming across. I know. And it's hard because I mean, and I'm guilty of this. I'm a thousand percent guilty of this, but I think that in an individual, like literally a content creator or whoever's own journey to understand where they're at with that level of sustainability, they project that onto their audience avertently or inadvertently sometimes. It's like, okay, like I, this is a decision I made. So this is a value that I have and I'm going to stick by. And it's really easy to forget that um, other people aren't going to have the same level of perspective or even like obviously privilege to make the same choices. So I think that that's another thing, you know, in the book itself, um, there's a part of the book that talks about indigenous peoples and how they were really forced out of their lands and how they all kind of went their own ways and had to part with their land or got pushed off of it. And then they came back together and how communities that stick together are the ones that thrive. And I think that, you know, within so many communities, not just the environmental community, that's the problem is when the community starts to turn against itself or it doesn't feel like a unified group. And I've seen that in other communities in my life too. And I think that this one will be much more resilient the more that we kind of hold space for everyone that's at every single stage of their journey. Because when I think about things like the choices that we make, it's like everybody has their own set of priorities. Like I know people that like might not care about 
labor rights as much as they care about carbon emissions or might not care about animal rights as much as they care about human rights. And, you know, at the end of the day, that is an individual's decision. And there has to be kind of a level of respect for that. Yeah, I agree. Like I was saying, compassion, there's a level of respect that needs to exist. I'm glad you brought the word respect into this conversation because this respect that other people live differently than you is one that I think for a long time, the environmental community had a hard time understanding. And that's also really frustrating to say that not everyone needs to live like you. And this conversation around privilege, I think has become not necessarily normalized. I think there's a lot of work to do around how people understand privilege. But I think as we normalize the conversation that not everyone has access to the same materials, resources, education, whatever it may be, there is a new level of respect that needs to be kind of birthed in that movement. It's like, okay, how do I respect the concept of other people just frankly living differently than I do? And that's not something that you would normally think like, I just don't have it in me to respect other people. But you do it subconsciously and you think that your way is the right way and like you normalize what you value and the way that you grew up is normal and the way that you interact with your friends is normal. And that's not necessarily true. Normal is relative. Yeah, Yeah, it's so relative. And I also think that like we all have levels of expertise and things that are going to change that the way that we see the world. And we were talking about this before we jumped on the call, but you know, the level of education that you have on certain things is going to make a massive difference. And, you know, the way I view a corporation is going to be different because I studied business. The way that you read a report is going to be so much more informed than me. Um, like the same way. So it's just like, people are going to have these advantages in different arenas of life that aren't just systemic, but are also educational, which is systemic, my bad. But um, yeah, I just think that that respect is something that hasn't always been talked about, even when it comes to things like veganism, things like that, that there's a long history there of people really lashing out at people who want the same things as them that they may not realize. So in a, in a really roundabout way, um, I think that this book made me realize that a lot of people want the same thing in different ways and we don't even see it. Yes, you're totally right. I'm going to share with you. I don't think I've shared this on the show before, but I've been saying this metaphor a lot in professional spaces, just this metaphor to better understand, like there are plenty of people with lived experiences different from your own that ultimately give them the same appreciation for whatever it is you're all working towards this concept that like not everyone is working against each other we actually all care about the same things I've been giving this example perhaps because I live in Colorado of the American cowboy like by no means do we understand in our regular communities we do not see cowboys as like these incredible environmental advocates like that's just not what they're branded as But in a sense, like these are communities that have been working the land for so many generations. All of this education is passed down verbally, like through non-traditional like education systems. All of this education is familial and it's inherited. And in a sense, like these are the best stewards of our land that Western society has come to appreciate in some sense. So is the Western cowboy actually like the environmentalist that we didn't know we had? I mean, yes and no. Are these people still advocating for ranching and and beef production and whatever? Like maybe, but also are they the ones that like would know how to do that in the best sense? 
probably. So how do we tap into a community like that from this like very general perspective to say, we recognize and respect what you do and what your generations on generations have brought to the table. And maybe we're not working towards the same goal of ending all animal agriculture, but if we're going to meet in some middle ground, like the American cowboy has to be at the table. So again, like super roundabout metaphor, but it's like kind of in a sense, it's like we are all working towards the same goal. No one wants to deplete the land. No one wants to take advantage of the animals. Like how do we meet the people in the middle that we don't think we have anything in common with? I love that. I also think at the end of the day, people love being asked questions about how they can help. I think I've never met, you know, they teach you this in business through networking, right? They're like, go ask a person, say you're a student, say you need help and you'll be shocked how many people will come help you. And I've seen that in tenfold. So, you know, the more people that we ask to get involved and share what they know, um, make people feel like experts of what they know, like get people involved in that way. And I really think um, we'll all learn something from it. I could learn from the American cowboy. (laughs) (laughs) I think we could all probably learn something from the American cowboy, but just like this concept that there are so many communities that we we do not tap into when we are discussing climate solutions. And why is that? And then in the vein of this book, it's like, why do we not really bring indigenous perspectives to the table when we talk about regenerative agriculture or tending to land long-term or cleaning up Superfund sites again? Like in a sense, the indigenous perspective is sometimes put as a very separate set of goals and solutions than this Western sense. And if we're not having just one general conversation and one general table and pool of solutions or pool of uh, technical quote unquote expertise mixed with indigenous expertise, like, of course, we're never going to come to some sort of collective solution because we're looking at these issues as separate goals. Definitely, 100%. And I, I think that a lot of people see, have a really misinterpreted understanding of what the indigenous community looks like and it's something that has undergone so much change in recent years like we're really unlearning things that we were taught as kids and things like that but at the same time there's so much more work to be done something i thought about while reading this book a lot was the published date it was published in 2013 has so many fascinating perspectives and something that it says is, uh, you know, we're not at the fork in the road yet. There's still time. And I'm like, where did that perspective, that perspective, has that come and gone? Um, how, how has time changed since 2013? Like, are these perspectives things that more people know today? I hope so. And like, I guess I left the book feeling a little bit like, I really hope that this is getting through to the right people and more people are finding this as common knowledge one day. And what does it take to create common knowledge, you know? That is a really hot question. What does it take to create common knowledge? And I feel like just everything we've discussed today about like normalizing conversations and respecting people, having different perspectives from your own and meeting people where they are and tapping into your communities, like it just takes a lot of that. And I feel like the difficult thing is that we will not see it immediately we will not recognize this moment in time until we are 30, 40 years down the road and coming to terms with what we did in 2020 and in 2022. And how is it that we're still discussing these issues? So I, I don't know. I really like that, but I'm glad that you brought that up, the published date, because I hadn't really thought about it that much. Um, switching gears a little bit, Samira, I'd love to know, what would you rate 
rating sweetgrass out of five? Out of five. I'd say, I mean, in terms of like genuine takeaways, I give it a solid like 4.5 and like out of everything, um, in terms of difficulty, it's not an easy read. This is not an easy read. I would give it definitely like a three in terms of how hard it was to read, but, um, what me like a hundred percent, like a, a solid four, I would say you, that's a good middle ground. I was going to say three and a half, I think, because I really, liked the content once I was done with it. But like I said, stylistically, it was really hard for me. Like I really had to take breaks and digest and come back to it when I was ready because I almost didn't know what I was reading half the time, which sounds awful. Like now that I'm saying it out loud, but I'm really, really glad I read it. And I think that it wrapped really beautifully. So I would recommend this to anyone who is interested in how we can mix indigenous knowledge with a more Western perspective. And what does this mean to, what does it, what does it mean to like truly appreciate land and come to terms with, come to terms with our interaction with land and, and just respect those more. I think a lot of people would benefit from reading this book, but it was hard. You were totally right. Like I'm, I'm going to say three and a half just for the stylistic takeaways. Yeah. And I also think that we've all become very accustomed to how do we make this fun? How do we make this like easy and digestible and, you know, a fun graphic, a cool video? Like, how do we make this easy? And like, I would just tell people like, this isn't necessarily the easiest route to learn something, but sometimes the most important lessons aren't easy to learn. And so don't be afraid to like sit with it for like a really long time and take your time. Yeah, that's a really good note to end off on. Uh, Samira, thank you so much for joining me today in this conversation and in reading Braiding Sweetgrass. I'm glad that we both enjoyed it and got something good out of it. I feel like overall our takeaways were really positive, which is great. So thank you so much for joining me for this. Of course. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Eco Chic. If you have made it this far, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. You can follow on Spotify. Share it with a friend. Tell me what you liked about it. Leave a review. I am interested to know what you want to read and hear about next. Like I said at the top of the episode, if you haven't listened to last week's conversation with Dr. Jessica Hernandez about indigenous science and healing landscapes, I feel like this episode and last week's pair really beautifully. So if you enjoyed this conversation, I know that you will enjoy that one. I hope you have an awesome day and I will talk to you really, really soon. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.